This episode of CCA is brought to you by The Body Shop's Hemp Range. Heavy-duty hydration for very dry skin. Beautiful people, there are no snippets this week because it felt far too weird choosing highlights from my own blubbing. I wasn't going to do a separate intro either because I've already talked at you a lot in this episode, but now that I've just listened back, I thought I would add a few things. Lessons this episode has taught me. Firstly, as you all know, I always say done is better than perfect, but when it comes to my own work, the perfectionist in me lives on. It was genuinely so hard for me not to re-record this after listening back and realizing all the things I've missed, all the things I could have said better, all the times that I struggle with saliva distribution when I talk by myself for an hour and a half, sometimes too much, sometimes too little. Anyway, you'll hear me say I've learned how much I really love podcast editing, but I've also now learned that I don't love editing myself talking to myself. I cringed the entire way through, especially when I laugh at my own jokes. So I legitimately do have to remind myself all the time of the things that I tell you guys to do. As they always say, do as I say, not as I do. Secondly, another one I'm reminded of every day, the self-doubt never leaves. I genuinely couldn't tell listening back if this was awful or great or both. And even after all this time, 100 episodes down, the fear and jitters are still coursing through me as I upload this one. So if you're ever worried about the imposter syndrome, you are not alone. We all experience it, but it is absolutely worth pushing through. Finally, You also will have realized I use positive fluffy words so much because that's genuinely how I feel about our guests and their lives and their stories, but it does mean there's not many words left over for those very special rare milestones in life. So I'm not sure I made it clear enough or that I had enough words to express really how grateful I am for my family, close friends, mentors, and everyone who's ever listened or been part of this podcast in any way. It is only thanks to you that we've hit 100 episodes, so here's to many, many more. I truly hope it's not as much rubbish as my self-critical eye might fear. Lovely neighborhood. welcome to episode 100 of Seize the A. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realize there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Beautiful neighborhood. I can't actually believe this is episode 100. As if to confirm everything CZA stands for, the podcast began without any real plan and no expectations for what it could become, and it has absolutely surpassed even my wildest dreams. As I've mentioned far too many times in the past few episodes, but that's because it's just such a good quote, you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. And this staircase has already extended so far beyond what I ever thought was possible. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart to every single person who has ever joined the podcast, listened along, shared or been part of the neighborhood in some way, and especially to those who have taken the time to share back with me what the podcast has helped them realize, achieve or aim for in their lives. This is truly a group effort in every single way. And I literally pinch myself every day. 
If you've been listening for a while now, you'll know that I use superlatives and positive rainbow words like they're going out of fashion, and yet I still can never find the right words to express how I feel about the podcast, the community, and this milestone, and and all of you. So I'll stop now because there are so many wonderful questions to get through. Thank you all for the excellent submissions. Just know that this brings me so much joy and so much depth to my life to create for you, and here's to a 100 more episodes and many more hundreds after that to come. I've only briefly looked at these questions to organize them into categories. Again, if you know me well, that won't surprise you at all. (laughs) But I haven't prepared the answers. You're just going to get exactly whatever comes out. And I can't promise you that that's going to be articulate or even useful. But I'm actually really, really grateful to you all for sparking so much self-reflection. They're actually incredible questions. And I'm really excited to think about them even just for myself. So first up, we'll talk about the podcast, then the book then personal life, then the clusterfuck of 2020, and then what's coming up next. So I don't know how long this is going to take because I obviously haven't timed it or prepared my answers in any way. And I want to answer as thoroughly and as honestly as I can, but without chewing your ear off. So we'll just see how it goes. And I can tell you from where I'm sitting, it already feels so weird without a guest just talking to myself. And none of you guys are here. This is one thing that you forget about a podcast is that when we record, you guys aren't listening. It's not till later. So at the moment, it just feels like I'm talking to myself, which is always a great time. Anyway, I better get over it now because the rest of it is going to be a lot of me talking. So we will start with the podcast. First question from Angelina, who is a CZA guest, as you all know, which have been your three most eye-opening interviews? Excellent question. Super hard to answer. They've all taught me something that I didn't know. I I love the, the saying that Everyone else knows something that you don't and you should make it your mission to try and find out what that is. So every single person of our 99 guests or whatever it's been so far has taught me something and opened my eyes in some way. I think, oh, goodness me. I think Osher Ginsberg's episode right back at the very beginning was the first time I'd ever really heard about psychosis from someone who had experienced it. As you all know, I've had quite significant anxiety and depression and panic attacks in my time, but full-blown psychosis is something I hadn't experienced and that I also hadn't heard about from the perspective of someone who actually had to front up to work in front of a camera and manage that over multiple seasons of a show that he was suffering from it through, but also how he has gone on to manage it and lead a very positive and fulfilling life and has since gone on to have a little bubba. So I think that was incredibly eye-opening for me. I would also say, I often refer to this one, Barney Miller, the paraplegic adaptive world surf champion and his wife, Kada. They have an incredible story. I've watched the documentary. I've read the book. But even still, after all that, talking to them and hearing their perspective on gratitude and how ability doesn't define you and just so much about the way that they perceive life and challenge and adversity and positivity just really, really changed a lot of things for me in my mind. And third, I mean, gosh, how do I even choose three? I think you guys know that I'm really, really fascinated by the military and war history. And so I, I really found Mark Wales's episode really interesting. Uh, and because his dear wife, Samantha Gash, is one of my closest friends, and so by extension, Mark is pretty much family, I'd actually never, despite all that, never sat down and picked his brain about his career and what he went through on all his tours, what the procedures are, how you even, you know, advance through the Australian military, what the ranks are, you know, all those 
fundamentals. I always sort of think with these podcast episodes that in every community, like there's a niche community for everything. And until you're in that community or know someone from it, you don't know the lingo, you don't know the progression. And I love finding that. I love teasing out those details in each episode. So I thought that one really, really opened my eyes to what, you know, a pathway to the SAS actually involves. And you hear about it and you know what people do and you know their titles and you see them in their uniforms, but you don't actually get your head around what, you know, is truly truly involved but I mean every episode I mean that's just three that come to mind straight away but honestly every episode has taught me something incredible uh, that I didn't hadn't thought about before I think flex mommies was also one that asked questions and posed uh, queries about philosophy on life that I hadn't thought about before yeah I just I think there's so many and it's so hard to pick. It's like asking me to pick my favourite child and already the first question I've rambled on and on and on, so we're going to have to get quicker at this. <laughs> uh, Nicole Camelli asked, which interview surprised you the most and why? And I think a lot of interviewees have surprised me for lots of different reasons, but one that I wasn't expecting to enjoy as much as I did was Jeremy Mose. I think I'm saying that right, who is the founder of Grown Alchemist. And I had interacted with the brand a lot. Uh, the girls who were doing the PR at One Two Agency who are wonderful. Uh, we have a really good relationship. So they suggested that Jeremy was an amazing speaker and he had a wonderful story. But it was one of the first guests in a really long time that I hadn't had a previous relationship with. So I had no idea what to expect. I'd never heard him speak before. He hadn't done a lot of interviews, so there wasn't even other content to kind of go and get his tone of voice. So I was just throwing it out there to be like, okay, you know, whatever. We'll just we'll go where this goes. I love the brand. The aesthetic's beautiful. The brand voice is beautiful. I'm surely, you know, he's he's super interesting. And from the minute, you know, some people, from the minute you step into their presence, from everything about the way they present themselves, you just like them. They're just so interesting, so articulate and just fun and I just loved him. Like every minute of that chat, even before we started recording, I think we spoke for maybe 20 minutes just chatting about life. He was immaculately presented, just so endearingly self-deprecating, but also really thorough in his answers. And I just didn't expect to have such a good time. And but it's not that I thought I'd have a bad time, but I just didn't no, I didn't have a past relationship that I could rely on. And that that one surprised me a lot. I think the Mark Manson interview also surprised me just how, I mean, if you haven't listened to it, it's up there with my favorites. He is just, he's the guy who wrote The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And there's so many things that you might assume about him that are exactly what you think, but there's also so many things that aren't. And we've, we'd had a great conversation before and he was really relaxed and open, but I just didn't think that we would chat like we were besties. Like the whole episode, we're just laughing like we're best friends and he's talking to me about losing his virginity and the first question, you know, what's the most down-to-earth thing about you? He's talking about his bowel movements and like, you know, I, I obviously encourage people to really be open and tell all the nitty-gritty, but you don't always expect that they're actually going to do that. <laughs> so he surprised me in just how genuinely open he was how much you expect that he's going to be all about, like, don't give a fuck about anything, but actually his philosophy is just give a fuck about lots of things, but just choose them wisely. I think that's very different to what you assume that he's all about. And um, he shared so openly as well about the process of becoming now the ghostwriter or the autobiographer who's writing Will Smith's 
the first ever telling of Will Smith's story, Will Smith chose him of all the writers in the world and approached him and I, you know, sort of thought he'd be a little bit more cagey about sharing details of someone so famous, but he was super, super open about you know, how how many times it took to actually meet him, but also how wonderful he is. And and he shared some juicy details, if you haven't listened to the episode, about some of the things that are to come out in that book. So, yeah, I was very, very surprised at how um, how relaxed. Uh, he didn't even want the questions in advance compared to others who need, you know, to have vetted and checked every single question. He was just like, no, let's just go on the fly. So that was that was a lovely surprise. Uh, my darling cat Carabatos, one of my dear friends, submitted quite a few questions, but I've split them into categories, which she will also be very proud of. What are the three biggest challenges you have faced since starting the podcast? Great question. I think learning to edit, being the person who records and edits and produces all at the same time, I've actually loved. And I didn't know that I would love that when I started because I'd never tried it. But I thought I'm just going to, like I do with most things, I'm going to bootstrap it and try and do it all in-house to begin with. And then as it grows, slowly start to outsource the things I'm not good at or that I don't enjoy. Editing is my favorite part. I love it. But I also didn't know like I was talking about with a niche community, I also didn't know there's a whole niche community of audio rules and things that in the beginning I didn't even know that different rooms, I mean, of course I knew, but I didn't really think about how much of an impact different room sizes, whether you have carpet or not, whether the guests was close to the microphone or they move around a lot when they speak and they move closer and further away, the levels that you record at, the echo, and then now only being able to record on Zoom, you're completely at the mercy of what recording facilities and rooms that the guest has at their disposal, how loud they speak, how crackly their internet is. There's so many things that make it incredibly difficult to be consistent and I really wanted to make a consistent product and I I always try and get a really nice balance between done is better than perfect but also don't just put out a shit product and that's a really hard balance. (laughs) So I actually don't go back and listen to the very first episodes and it sometimes alarms me that I newcomers to the podcast do go back and listen to those and they must hear the quality slowly, slowly get much, much better and more (laughs) consistent. But it's been a big challenge learning how to deal with audio equipment or when things don't work. (laughs) One of the most embarrassing things that has ever happened of all the times I've had so many episodes go super smoothly, audio is perfect, everything's fine. I didn't actually have any huge mishaps until probably this year. And uh, the first time I tried to go, you know, next level fancy was because of course I was interviewing Guy Sebastian in his studio with all the best audio equipment in the world and I thought oh yeah cool I'm gonna get an adapter because my zoom that I record into so not zoom the program that we all use for like Skype but zoom it's the recorder that our microphones plug into mine only has two microphone holes and most of the time the microphones are sensitive enough to have two guests on one microphone if I have two guests which doesn't happen all the time so I only need it every now and then But Jules and Guy were joining and I thought, oh, God, I've got to have two separate microphones for them. Like I can't just make them share one. I mean, it's Guy and Jules Sebastian. So I got an adapter that would have another one and I didn't know because I couldn't hear it when I was recording that it buzzed 
the whole way through and you couldn't fix it. I couldn't fix it. I did all these YouTube tutorials on like fixing audio bars and changing echo and all these things. And um, I had an expert friend, Andy, who's amazing. He also actually also produces uh, Osh's podcast and the How to Live podcast, who we collaborated with to interview Wim Hof, the Iceman. He still couldn't really do much with it because he's like, it's the equipment. And so that was a disaster. And then again, like the next big guest that I had, nothing had ever gone wrong doing Zoom interviews or Zencaster, which is the online platform until, of course, I had Miranda Kerr and then everything dropped out completely 20 minutes into the interview and then I couldn't get onto her and then it was just a big disaster. So logistical challenges have definitely been the biggest hurdle, I think, but that's also been the best learning and the best, most fun challenge, I think, for me to like get my hands on something that was completely new and completely foreign and just learn a new skill. And it's kind of mathematical and technical and I really like that. And I continually am doing courses and and YouTube videos and tutorials and stuff to learn more. So that's been really fun. Uh, Other two big challenges. Ooh, so I wouldn't have said this until this year, but in light of the sort of resurgence of the BIPOC conversation, which definitely needed to happen, I think that the second biggest challenge has been pleasing all sorts of diversity because diversity to me, racial diversity, obviously being non-Caucasian and adopted, I'm already kind of diversity walking in some way. It's a very important thing for me. And also because the idea of very idea of seizing your yay is to show you that your pathway doesn't have to look like somebody else's. So I think one of the biggest challenges there was I wanted to show how different everyone's stories can be, but different in all different ways, not just across race, because I actually don't think that that is the biggest definer of our journey. It is a big definer, of course, but there's also physical ability, sexual orientation, age is a really big one, background, like financial or socioeconomic background, um, location, accent, nationality, like, well, obviously nationality is ethnicity, but there are just so many different forms of diversity that I wanted to account for. And across industry, of course, is the biggest one. I didn't want it to just be business owners who had left corporate like me, because that's only one way to find happiness. I wanted the zookeepers, the essential workers, the military, that I wanted everything. And It has been very, very difficult to make sure that you're representing all different kinds of joy, but also in curating that list that those people are actually available at that time. Because I also forget that even if I've got this perfect list that's, you know, the very first list, my wish list that I wrote out had everything in an order that had like business women spread out and people with similar stories in different industries, like the beauty people spread, the women spread, people with similar, you know, anything that was similar kind of spread out. You can't get everyone in that order at that time. And then things get pushed back and then, you know, you've got to reschedule. And so it's a bit of a juggling act to manage everyone's availability, especially pre-COVID when everyone wasn't, you know, didn't have all this extra time at home. That's been another big challenge, not one that's been like, a, you know, a burden or anything, but just logistically there's a lot of thinking of like, oh, I can't put those two episodes or those three in a row because they're all too just business and, and the message, not that the message is ever the same, but yeah, I try and um, also have a really good balance where possible between people who have a really big profile and people who don't. But then sometimes if you leave it too long without a big name, then people who do want that 
that part or do want to hear about people they've you know behind the scenes of people they already know then you're not pleasing them so pleasing everyone I'm an eternal people pleaser it's a real issue (laughs) so that's been another big challenge and the third honestly the process has been such a pleasure there's not really been too many other challenges I've feel very, very, very lucky that I haven't had many trolls. I haven't had many haters. The reviews have all been very, very constructive and genuine. There's been no just outright mean attacks or anything like that. So yeah, I think the the third biggest challenge would be like in anything, self-doubt is just doubting when, you know, you have one week an episode doesn't go as well for no particular reason, not because the interview wasn't as good. Like sometimes the ones that you finish and go, oh, my God, fuck yeah, that was so good, are not the ones that people love. And then ones that I thought, oh, that's, you know, it's not as good or or just it's not as engaging or I didn't feel as good on that day. I think then sometimes people come back and say, this was the best, my favourite so far, and you're like, what? That doesn't even make sense. So that has also been really difficult. And it's always a fine line, not just in podcasting but in everything. There's always a fine line between, you know, sticking to the message of Seize the A and what you want the podcast to be about and sticking within kind of that brand idea, but then also pleasing everyone. And it's hard to, you need to mold a little bit to what everyone wants, but not lose yourself completely. And it's, yeah, that's a really hard balance. Uh, Oh my God, I'm taking so long to answer every question. Okay. I'm going to speed up. Sorry guys. (laughs) As you can hear, literally it's just me sitting in a room doing this by myself. So I'm just like getting into my flow. All right. Uh, Kat also asked, have you had any interviews that never went to air? I haven't done this yet. I know a lot of podcasts that have had to do that because of audio quality or because it's just not, it didn't turn out to hit all the things that the podcast is about. It's a very, very difficult question and very hard when you have a guest and you've got to explain it. I haven't done that yet and I haven't had to. I don't actually know if I would. It's a really difficult one, but no, I haven't had any. Um, But follow on question from Vanessa Brown, any awkward interviews where it was hard to get the conversation flowing? Yes, I have had that. I haven't actually stopped any going to air, but I have had ones where I found it a little bit more difficult to sort of get the conversation into that, you know, that sees the yay flow where we're just kind of giggling and just really naturally you know, I, I think some, not all people give as much detail as I do. Like it's when I answer a question, you have to stop me or I'll just keep going. Whereas some people are really concise and they know what their answer is. And that's not, it's not a bad thing at all. It's just in podcasting, you kind of want them to elaborate until you kind of stop them <laughs> or it can go the other way around. But yeah, I have had a couple where it, it was harder. And often that was, sometimes that happens because there's been a bit of a lag or other times it's just because I haven't had a relationship with that person before. Like a couple of times I've had people who I've literally never spoken to before because it's such a privilege to get access to them. I've had, you know, a lot of Olympians on who are in interviews or they're just training so rigorously so you don't have the time to sort of chat to them in advance. And I find that it's the ones where I literally get on the call and then press record where there's no banter before and we don't warm up. And sometimes, you know, often you do end up warming up in the conversation, but for people who listen often and know what you know, the really flowy ones sound like, they would hear that these ones take a little bit longer. But no, I've never had any that actually didn't go to air. Uh, And I think because, you know, part of CZA for me is showing all of the sides of things. And I mean, a lot of them work out really, really well, like just exactly how I want them to sound as a conversation 
between friends as if it was on a couch. But I think part of it is also showing the ones that don't necessarily and showing that not everyone has personalities that match to have a 55-hour conversation. So, yeah, I don't think I would not put any to air. But having said that, I mean, I haven't had, you know, a dud yet. <laughs> uh, Darnasaurus, another very loyal member of the neighborhood. How do you speak so eloquently on your podcast episodes? You practically never say um or ah. What's your secret? I thought that was a really good question because I didn't really notice that I don't say um or ah that much. But when I thought about it, because I saw this question come through a couple of weeks ago when I first started asking for questions, I realized that I think it's because in our legal training, we did, I did a mooting competition, which is like a fake court competition. It's a big thing in law schools and you all go up against each other. And then the grand final is actually in a, a court in front of proper, mostly Supreme Court judges, and they actually decide who wins. So it's a big deal in the legal fraternity. And I also did an advocacy subject and I wasn't a debater. Like I I didn't like public speaking at all. I didn't think I was good at it. But in advocacy, you actually have to learn because it undermines the power of your argument when you say um or ah in court, we actually were trained to replace um if you were going to say um or if you needed to buy yourself time not to use those words and to say so or just to replace it with something else that sounded like you knew what you were talking about and you weren't trying to buy time. And I think I spent, I think it was a one-year subject and I spent that whole year really practicing interrupting an um before it came out and replacing it with something else that sort of smoothed over the conversation. So it's not that I'm so eloquent that I don't need an um. It's just that I have been trained really to replace it with something else so that you can't tell that I'm like, I'm that duck whose legs are like swimming furiously under the water. But on the top, I'm like, I'm chill. I'm chill. And trust me, that's happened so many times where the guest is just so articulate or I'm really intimidated by them or I'm like, they're just so amazing that I'm like, I don't even know what to say. Or I've had days where, and this is hysterical, days where like I'm either, you know, premenstrual or just really tired and not feeling it, or especially when we've been recording at home and it's hard to, you're not in this formal setting where you're sitting in front of each other, where I've literally tuned out of my own question and like forgot what I was going to ask next. So... <laughs> Actually, I've got a video somewhere. I can't even remember who it was, but recently where I was like, hmm, uh, so the next question, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to stop because I don't know what I'm saying. The poor guest was like, okay. Anyway, so uh, Dana, don't worry. It's with lots of practice and I'm still saying um in my brain. <laughs> Another one from Nicole. What do you think you have learned about yourself since starting this podcast? And that's another great question. I'm so glad that you guys have asked all these because I probably haven't reflected on these questions yet myself, but I think so much. I've learned that I didn't know, I wasn't an interviewer when I began. I'd only ever inter bit like been interviewed as the guest. And I think I assumed that, you know, people on TV or people on the side of the interviewer had it the easy bit because they were just reading the questions that were pre-prepared. But I've realized that it's a skill I didn't have before. It is so hard because you're the one who's managing the time the next question, you're trying to link everything together, you're keeping them in check. Like there's so many ways that the interviewer is managing everything and you're managing whether it's fulfilling for the crowd, you're making sure we're all staying on brand, on topic. Like it's 
just I underestimated that skill a lot and I had to learn that I didn't know how to do it and then figure out how to find the right balance between asking questions and keeping people on topic but giving them space to answer in the way that they need to. And I think I've become much better at guiding people with the right balance um, and I still have so much to learn but I think at the beginning I was like so much more just winging it and had no idea. <laughs> I've learnt that I am fascinated by human beings. I think I knew that before but I started this podcast mainly because my job in Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar had become very behind the scenes and I was really missing human interest. And I've always wondered why do I love war history? Why do I love that? I hated history at school. I'm so yay orientated and that's very heavy and deep. Why am I so interested in that? And why am I so interested in serial killers? And why do I love reading the details of stuff like that? And I think that it's because I'm so fascinated by how our brains work. I'm so fascinated by how people interact with each other, how they respond to certain situations. I'm so fascinated by decision-making and perspective and motivation and controlling your thoughts. And I love hearing about stuff that I'm never going to do. It's never going to, like, I'm never going to go into that industry necessarily, or I don't know that I'm not going to, but I'm probably not going to, but I just find, you know, that community thing we talked about, everyone has a niche community. I love finding out about those niches. I just love to talk about people's lives and find out things that I don't know and not to learn those things and not to become that person, but just to know what other people do and how other things work. And I don't think I knew just how much I loved that. And if I didn't love that, I might've got to the point where the podcast all became all same, same, or where I didn't want to do it anymore. I, I have no idea what was going to happen, but I realized this is, if no one was listening, I would still want to do this. I would still want to have a platform that gave me an excuse to ask interesting people about the interesting stuff that they do that I don't know about. And I think that's been a huge, a huge thing that's taught me also, it's improved my real life conversations as well, because I know how to ask questions differently to get the most interesting information. I think I've learned how to make people feel more comfortable to show who they really are. I've also learned, I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that the blooper sort of authenticity over shareness was very new when I first started CZA and I didn't know how much of a big part that was going to be of everything because you do have to, if you want to be really engaging and motivating and inspiring, you can't also always be like, I'm anxious, I'm like, blah, you know, it's, it's a really fine balance. But I realized that is actually a huge part of me feeling fulfilled is that I, I do show all the bits. I don't really feel like I'm being as impactful or I don't personally feel as comfortable with everything I'm doing when I'm not showing all the shit bits and the bloated bits and all that. That I love showing all of that and knowing that everyone who listens hears all of it and like can see all those sides and knows that I also have anxiety and get flat. Yeah, I think that's also been something that's made my relationship with our digital world and presenting a digital identity. I've become a lot more comfortable with what my relationship is and who I am and the purpose I use it for. And yeah, and that, yeah, I just, I really love human beings and um, I find everyone so interesting. And the quote that I always said about everyone else knows something you don't, like I knew that I would love to find what that is, but I thought that it would be more limited to stuff that would be something I could learn 
for my career or for my life, whereas now I'm like, I don't even care if it's relevant in any way or not. I'm just interested. So anyway, another long-winded answer. (laughs) Uh, Laura Court and Katie GB asked, who would your dream person be to interview? There are so many. Oh my gosh, I have such a long wish list, but I would love, love, love to interview the Queen. I just think that would be so fascinating to I mean, she's seen stuff, man. She's been around for so many different versions of this world and I would love to speak to her. Similarly, uh, anyone who knows a Holocaust survivor, I would find that so, so interesting and educational. I I think I also, and in answer to Nicole's question to add something to that, I think I also really care about teaching people stuff and I don't think I knew that I I mean, I obviously I like to teach people stuff, but I don't think I knew just how much I like using this platform to, in each episode, teach you guys something new that you didn't know historically or factually or, you know, even like most of us take for granted paramedics and firemen and policemen and like we don't know how they what they do during the day and I think it's important that we all know that stuff and you know same with some of the charity guests I love that at the end you guys are more informed or have more facts or have more things that kind of open I love conversations that open your mind basically so I think those two would be incredibly mind-opening for all of us. Obama would be someone I would love to talk to. I think that would be so interesting. Yeah, there's a really, really long list, but they would be right up there. Uh, Who else? Uh, Kristen Wiig or any of the girls from Bridesmaids, any like hilarious comedians I think would be just wonderful. Pretty much anyone who's been on Comedians in Cars with Coffee or Carpool Karaoke, I think that would all just be really, really interesting. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're just a a few that I can think of. Jeslyn Lan asked, how do you choose who you interview for the podcast? What's the process? That's also another really interesting one because it's a little bit, of a combination between really planned and really haphazard. So it's very much, as I mentioned before, focusing on that overall diversity. So if I think I've had a lot of business owners recently, then the next four or five, I'll really try and focus on entrepreneurs or essential services or people in employment. And then if I've had, you know, a lot of people in one industry, I'll also try and make the next ones quite different and spread out beauty guests, spread out, you know, business guests, spread out tech, spread out, you know, try and just make sure there's a good mix. And it's kind of actually hard because in one month you only have four, you only have four episodes and I wish I could do more, but they just, they take a lot of time to organize. So it's a combination of the roles or the industry spots that are kind of coming up with guests who, I mean, because there are only four a month, there's people who I've had lined up for so long who I'm still only now getting through. So a lot of them are kind of pre-booked from a long time ago and we've just been waiting for the right time or they might have a product coming out or a book coming out and they've wanted to delay it till now. I have have an enormously talented group of friends who I'm so, so lucky to be around and for the most part, I mean, you guys have heard in, if you've listened to all of them, you know that most of them I already knew somehow and had some connection with and that's partly I chose them because I knew the conversation would be much more enjoyable and flow more easily for you guys because you because we've got a relationship, but also because it was easier to line up and, and they trusted me and they were going to, you know, they had a little bit more chance that they'd say yes and, and all those kinds of things. So it's a bit of a mix of everything. I increasingly get a lot of people pitching stories, which is so lovely. And if it lines up and I love because, you know, in your own network, it's limited that you don't know people that you don't know. And sometimes people draw your attention to incredible stories that you haven't heard of before, or people have submitted themselves as well, like Emma from Canvas Co., the undercover 
undercover cop who also makes these beautiful canvas journals. She submitted herself. Uh, so did Amy Kate, the psychologist, also from Brizzy. She just emailed me and had they had a great story. And at the time, you know, I wanted cops and firemen and nurses and I also wanted a psychologist. So it all kind of worked out. And then other times it's people who I've wanted to have on for ages and have targeted them either because they're friends or because they're not or I've spoken with them in the past and shot out an email and then like a year later it works out that they've got a time like it's some happen I record them I arrange it record it and it's all done in like two weeks and then others it's like a year so it's very random but yeah I mean always submit stories that you think are interesting because a lot of them have come through that way and anything's interesting I mean everyone is interesting in their own way I think we all assume that whatever we do is not interesting because if we do it it can't be interesting but you've all got an interesting story and sometimes even a story is interesting if it's not that interesting like not that it's not (laughs) oh my god guys you can tell I'm starting to lose it not that it's not interesting but one of my favorites was Michelle Burkett who's the zookeeper her story you know I always say like you know there's always a non-linear way to yay hers was pretty linear she loved animals she wanted to be a zookeeper she's a zookeeper she doesn't want to be anything else and that is interesting in itself because that's an example of someone who didn't need to divert in all different directions to figure out what they wanted so it doesn't there's no real criteria except that you're an interesting that you're a human really so please do um submit your stories email me you guys know I check all the dms and check all the emails uh and they all come directly to me so always always open to suggestions and then it's just working out if it fits with what's coming up and then where it fits and again I'm so lucky to have so many people in the works that I've had to say to a couple of people yes definitely let's do that but let's do it in December which is so weird (laughs) or next year which I'm very very lucky lucky to be in that situation Renee how did you get into what you do and what's the advice you'd give to others getting into the podcast space so Mine was, uh, again, a bit of a happy accident, just like kind of everything since the law firm. And the very first foray into Matcha Maiden and Matcha Mukba, you can hear all about in episode one and lots of different episodes and on other people's podcasts also. And of course, the book, which is coming out very soon. The whole story is in there. But in terms of the podcasting part, I think I did a lot of unlearning from corporate of being very risk averse, having everything has a five-year plan. You know, I got paid to move dot points from one spot to the other. So everything had to be perfect. And then I moved into this mindset of actually done is better than perfect. Let's, you know, take that whole start before you're ready just get things out there. And Nick was really, really instructive in helping me unlearn and change my mindset. And then four years on, once I'd gotten much more used to that thinking pattern, the idea for yay in your life is something that, you know, it's all going to be composed of different ingredients at different times. And four years in, I'd sort of reached this new chapter. And I was worried that I was being, you know, an instant gratification-based millennial who was just bored and wanted something new. But I was like, no, actually, I think it's genuinely an ingredient is missing and it's that people contact and it was a process of reverse engineering well how do I fill that gap and the gap was best filled by conversations with people in kind of a one-on-one way where I could ask these intimate questions and share people's vulnerabilities and make everyone feel more human and then make their message more relatable and so I thought oh well a podcast is the most logical way to do that but I don't know how to podcast but if I buy the equipment, I'll have to learn how to podcast. So I genuinely think that all of life is just tricking your own brain to do the stuff you want it to do. So I have realized if I, you know, dump some money on some equipment, then it will make me take the opportunity seriously and learn what to do. 
And I also, you know, that quote, keep, I keep coming back to that idea that you don't need to see the whole staircase. I didn't actually care if it didn't work out because I just wanted to try it. And who cares if no one, like the big thing about podcasting for anyone who wants to get into it, people say it's heavily saturated. It is. It's very crowded now. It's not as new as it was, but no, you know, someone else out there is looking for exactly what you have. No one has your voice. No one has your way of expressing things, but also it is the most democratic liberated platform ever. No one sees your stats. Even you see hardly any stats. You get very little data about, you don't even ever know what your subscriber number is. You just know the listens per episode. And there's charts, of course, but no one has any transparency on how you get up and down on the chart. So I don't even really look at it. It's just you make content that you think is really interesting and either people will listen or they won't, but no one will ever find out about that. People say that people are afraid of failure I think we are afraid of failure, but I think we're actually more afraid of looking like a failure. So if you knew that if you failed, no one else would know about it, I don't think we'd be nearly as scared. I think it's more looking silly that we worry about than the actual failure. And in the case of podcasting, no one will ever know if you failed or not because no one sees your data. So there's actually no risk. Uh, except the equipment that you would be able to sell if you decided you didn't want to do it. There's no reason why you shouldn't just start. Have an amazing conversation. It gives you the most incredible learning opportunity. It's so much fun and I just can't recommend it more highly. The information on how to start one, even it's just so freely and readily available. I've done all my learning on YouTube tutorials. I've written a blog post and there are many like it that have all my equipment listed, all the apps that I use, all the editing programs that I use. Most of them are free. So it's very, very democratic and approachable. Uh, And I would highly recommend that if you're interested and you love conversations, I jump on heaps of people's podcasts. I think it's such a fun way to learn about yourself and about people. Uh, And they don't have to have huge listenerships for me to think that any podcaster that has one download or one listen They've had that person's attention for an hour. It counts so much more than an Instagram like that's like a two-second interaction. And you don't know where your biggest supporters are going to come from. So I don't sort of ever say, oh, you don't have a million followers or a million downloads. I'm not going to go on it. I think anyone you engage with in that level of depth is a valuable interaction. So I would definitely, definitely get into it. Melanie Schroeder, adding to that question, how do you find your topic, tone of voice and first guests? That's also something that uh, is very, very personal and depends on really, I think, what you want. Because I think a lot of the time on you know, social media and Instagram, we reverse engineer what we post based on what we think is going to get a good response. And we're controlled a little bit more by popularity. But on a podcast, again, like no one, it's not a popularity contest because no one really knows who's the most popular. You only know your own stats. You can't even compare them to anyone else. So I think what what is going to be enjoyable for you to produce, what you think you would learn from, what you think would be valuable and where you think the gap is. So topic, something you're passionate about and interested about, because obviously it's not something that monetizes very quickly or easily. It does happen, of course, but it does take a little while. So it's got to be a passion project first. So a topic that you're really interested in and usually something that you have, you know, a connection to. Tone of voice you will find develops as you go. You will either some, you know, I'm super conversational and relaxed and oversharey, but that's not the right forum for something that's more expert based or, you know, a true crime podcast. Like you'll find it what you sit, you know, it's a lot of talking. So you have to be able to maintain that tone as well. So something that's really personal to you and 
relevant and appropriate to your topic. And then first guests, uh, that's also a hard one because it depends on who says yes and who's available. And But I would say the earlier you can start lining them up, the better. So I had the idea, I actually registered CZA in 2017 when I knew that that was the name that would you know, describe my philosophy. I didn't start the podcast till a year and a half later. You know, I just knew that that was the name, but I didn't know what format it would take. But by the time I decided a podcast, we bought the equipment a week later. I think I had my first guest. I emailed them that day because I knew it would take a really long time to get an actual meeting lined up. But I think just just approach people, just line them up, have a wish list and rank them maybe in order of who's most likely to say yes. And then just when you've locked in the first one, that kind of forces you to push out the other ones as soon as you can. It is a bit of a jigsaw really, but just start start as soon as you can. I think, um, I think that will serve you well. A quick word before we continue from our partner in Yay for this very exciting 100th episode, my longtime love, The Body Shop. I'm not sure about you guys, but during the colder months, my hands get incredibly dry, let alone with all the extra hand sanitizer we've been using this year. Our hands really do hustle all day long and allow us to do so much, like edit this episode, yet we forget to take care of them. Mine have been soaking up the heavy-duty hydration of the Body Shop's hemp range with luscious hemp seed oil. I've been taking a little extra time lately to exfoliate and gently wash with the new hemp hardworking hand scrub, then soften and nourish with the best-selling hemp hand protector. Have you ever properly massaged your hands? It's actually so relaxing. <laughs> Head to thebodyshop.com.au to find out more. So the next topic, that wraps up the podcast questions. The next topic is the book. So from the lovely Michelle Tonkin, who is another wonderful, wonderful supporter, she asked for a little sneak peek snippet of the book and a bit more background about the story behind it. So I'm actually going to, we're less than a month away from the actual launch of the book, and I'm actually going to do, I think, a few readings of pages in advance as little teasers. So some lives maybe once a week, uh, just finalizing the details with the publisher of certain pages of the book to give you a little taste of what's coming. So I won't do that here, but for a bit more background about the story, I think I've had a CZA book in my body for many years. I love writing. I mean, I chose to do a 50,000 word thesis in my legal degree. I love the art of writing. I always have. So I always thought I'd want to write a book, never knew what it would be about. And this is the thing. I think a lot of us try and force things out for the sake before we actually, before it's time, whereas life really unravels in chapters and it's never been the right chapter for me to write a book that was meaningful or that fit all the criteria that would make it work. And it wasn't until CZA came as a concept that I was like, that's my thing. It's not matcha. It's not, you know, tea. It's not necessarily all wellness. It's joy. It's finding your joy. But it took me a year after that to sort of figure out what that meant and how it was expressed and what the sections were, like NATA, play TA, all the ideas and the quotes and I wouldn't, if I'd started a year before, I wouldn't have wrote, written the book that I did. So I had the idea that I wanted to write one the whole time that I had the podcast, but it wasn't until, you know, I obviously, <laughs> if you aren't given a deadline, you generally don't start. <laughs> so <laughs> I 
knew I wanted to write one. I hadn't obviously started. But uh, a week after the wedding, it was a publisher that actually suggested that uh, CZA could be a book. My wonderful manager, Jen, had reached out to them and they thought it was a great idea. So we signed the book deal, but they were like, if you want it out by Christmas this year, then we need the manuscript by January. So this was end of, this was start of November. Uh, not a lot of time to get my entire life of thoughts in order. But again, I'm better on a deadline. I probably, if you'd given me a year, I still would have taken, I still would have done it all in a really short amount of time. So my Christmas and New Year's was in Bookland. And it was really just a process of organizing everything that sees the A, every single aspect that that concept could everything we've ever talked about in the podcast, all those themes, everything I've ever learned from anyone I've ever spoken to with my story intertwined and guest stories and other inspiring people out in the world's stories intertwined. So I can share the chapter list. It's a 12-chapter book and each one was going to be based on a quote, but it's actually now based on a theme that if you work through it, it addresses sort of every area of your life that you can go through to add more yay to each part and then at the end you will have seized your yay or be on your way to yay. So the first one is the formation of a entrepreneur, which is obviously my story, the self-sabotage of self-doubt, done is better than perfect, comparison is the thief of joy, building your yayborhood, reason, season or lifetime, yay is a staircase, not an elevator, welcome to the discomfort zone, failing forwards, you won't do a good job if a good job is all you do, play to yay, and then the conclusion is yay is a journey, not a destination. So there's a lot of stuff that you've heard me articulate before, but in a lot more depth and with a lot more examples and a lot of stuff about my adoption and a lot of just deeper, a deeper level of exploration with practical examples, a lot of giggles, um, a, bit of a, a bit of an overshare and some contributions from some wonderful, wonderful people. So I'm super, super excited about that. I finished the last edits, I think, uh, end of June and pre-sale is on, as you guys know, and uh, they'll be shipping from the 1st of September with some launch fun coming up. So I won't say any more because we've got a lot more questions and you'll be hearing about the book in due time. So the next section is personal. Cannot believe how long I've been talking, guys. Oh, my God, but I'm going to do it all in one go while I'm on a roll. So Mill Waller asked, what are your top three achievements so far? That's such a hard one. Uh, I think one would be leaving the law firm, that still stands out as, you know, at the time it wasn't the scariest thing I've ever done, but looking back, I'm like, that was way scarier than I really knew. And naivety, as we always say, is actually quite a good friend to you at the time. If I'd known how scary it was, or if I'd known I was leaving forever, I might've thought it was, I mean, it, well, obviously I agonized about it a lot and it was scary, but it's scarier now to me than it was then. Uh, so walking away from a me that was very, very risk averse, so based on certainty and planning and unlearning and embracing a whole different world uh, in such a short time, I'm really, really proud of and also so happy with because, you know, I always say if you're not actively unhappy, most people won't make a change. And but for the happy accident of adrenal fatigue after Africa, I would probably have stayed there because I was grateful to have a job. I wasn't actively unhappy and I could have spent years and ended up, I spent a whole lifetime in that career and being grateful for it and just coasted along and not realized that actually you don't have to settle for okay. Things can be better than okay. So that's a big one. Second top achievement, I would say writing the book. I think it's an enormous task to organize all of your thoughts that you've ever had in your brain into one thing. (laughs) 
And I'm so pleased, even if no one bought it or no one reads it other than myself, I'm so happy to have in one book form a a, like collective exhaustive, almost exhaustive record of my thoughts in my mind at a point in time. I think that's such an invaluable thing to have. It's almost like a diary. All of us, I've actually been keeping a diary in isolation because I think one day we'll look back and remember the big things, but we'll forget what we did during the day and the small feelings and revelations we had. And we'll want to explain that to our kids one day. So it's it's a bit like that, keeping a diary or a record of who you were at a certain time in your life. And that's a really, really huge achievement. And my third achievement, I feel like this is where everyone always says my child, but I haven't had one yet. So, I mean, my dog, my golden retriever. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm proud of a lot of things. I think, um, I mean, starting the podcast, I guess, that was a big step in self-doubt. Again, it's another big act of putting yourself out there, of not knowing anything about how it's going to go or who you, you, what you're up against or if I could even edit. Or That's a big scary thing to show so much of yourself and to share so much of yourself not knowing how you know, that success is guaranteed. And I guess having some of the messages that come through now about how it's helped people, particularly in the area of mental health, even if I only had one of those ever, that would be enough for me to think I've achieved something worthy with this podcast. There are people out there who have called Lifeline or who have, you know, opened up to their friends because their understanding of mental health is not a weakness um, was crystallized through one of the episodes or something like that. You know, I think they're my biggest biggest achievements um, that I'm most most proud of. Another question from Ange, who's your biggest inspiration? Probably still my mum. I always say mum, but I don't think that's changed. She's one of my best friends. She's incredibly wise, patient, kind, caring, and giving to a fault. Um, and she just is such a support and guiding light and is the reason why we are who we are. So I owe everything to her. She's so incredibly supportive and yeah, just has taught me so much about humanity and kindness. So she's my, yeah. And she's been through a lot in the last few years and has lived in a lifetime where her choice was nursing or teaching. Yeah, just has had a, you know, a a lifetime of change and challenge and is still unwaveringly positive and supportive. So she's my biggest inspiration. Jing Ha asked, what did you wish you knew in high school or uni? Great question. And I would actually say there's a lot I wish I could say to myself, but I'm also glad that I didn't because I was a very, very different person in high school. The adolescent brain is just messed up. <laughs> I was a total rebel. I smoked in my uniform. Like, ew, I smoked. Like, what even? What even? I can't, ew. I was such a rebel. I wagged all the time. I was at parties and drinking UDLs. I was just such a different person. But I think going through that phase, is what allowed me to settle down on time for year 12, which then allowed me to knuckle down and get into law, which then allowed me to do everything I've done since. So everything happens for a reason and everything happens at the time that it's supposed to. So I wouldn't change anything really. That I, I, I guess the only thing I would say is enjoy it as much as you can because you're so unburdened and so have no responsibility and just to make the most of it all. And I think I did. I think mum was really, really good at saying Uh, to make the most of it. So at uni, you know, I was very serious about my law degree, but I also did five exchanges. I made the most of the travel opportunities. I was on every committee. You know, I tried not to miss out on anything. And I'm so glad now because you don't know at the time 
how free you really are. So I guess I'd whisper that in my ear, but I wouldn't want to change anything, I don't think. I'm just so eternally glad that Facebook and Instagram were not around through those phases because I was ugly. (laughs) So I'm so glad there's not much evidence of that. (laughs) Jeslyn, how do you do it all? Do you have a virtual assistant or manager? I'm just amazed at how you juggle it all and are still a happy, kind and bubbly human being. (laughs) Well, I can assure you I'm not always like that. Um, That's very kind of you to say as well. I don't have a VA or like a PA. I don't don't have one. I think I probably will at one stage, but we had matcha made in. We had too many different things on the ball and it just would have been too difficult and messy. I do have a manager, uh, Genevieve from Day Management, who is absolutely incredible at managing all of the TV stuff, um, everything for podcast partnerships, all the Instagram work and content creation and video and all of that, all of that is managed by her. She's absolutely wonderful. And uh, I have always been very, uh, I thrive when I have more to do. You know, they always say give a busy person something to do and they'll get it done. I love time management. I love spreadsheets. I love calendarizing things. Like I think being an organized person by nature makes it a lot easier, but it's also easy to make it look like you juggle a lot of things because we do post a lot about what we're doing. So sometimes it looks like we have it all together, but Nick will reassure you, I have regular meltdowns. I have had chronic fatigue. So I do have to be really, really careful that to stay happy, kind and bubbly, I do have to be really gentle with myself. I give myself like full sloth Sundays on the weekend. I barely look at my phone. Um, I've implemented a lot of boundaries over the past few years that have helped make that possible. But even having said that, just yesterday, I had one of those days where I just couldn't do anything. I no shit could not do anything. I just was flat. My anxiety had flared. And you just have to allow yourself those days because when you do do a lot and fit it a lot in, then on the one day where your body just conks it and is like, nah, I'm not doing it, you just have to listen to it. So I've gotten better at doing that. And actually, I'd say I've gotten better at juggling it all since I stopped trying to juggle it all. I've just accepted that you can do anything, but you can't do everything. And if you do try, you sacrifice the quality of everything else that you do. So being a little bit more selective, being rigidly aware of boundaries and what you need and how to stick to those limits and to care for yourself and to realize urgent is not urgent. You know, with matcha, especially like if people don't get their green tea, no one's going to die. It's fine. You know, and and it turns out that I've released a lot of podcasts on Wednesdays, but I never actually announced a day so that if it's an extra day or an extra week, like it's just no big deal. It does. It's an interesting one. It looks sometimes effortless, but it takes a lot of work to juggle it all, to manage your energy and to still be a bubbly and happy person. But I think once you get to know those boundaries, and I only know them because I've pushed well past them and messed up so many times, um, Over time, you learn more and more what you need and you also learn more and more to listen to it quickly and respond quickly. So Amy Fraseroo asked on that note of recommendations for coping with chronic fatigue and Christine Campbell asked that about anxiety and same. I think you just need to be incredibly in tune with what your body needs, what the signs are when you're not giving it what it needs, respond very fast, be gentle as well, and just accept, you know, I am I really, really used to pride myself on being 150% productive all the time. I do a lot, but in between, I do nothing. And that has been really difficult. I spent all day yesterday doing nothing and all day I was like, who am I? Because I'm not doing anything. But you just have to sit with that because that's just what your body needs. So 
Same with anxiety. I think we all have a threshold and we all have an ideal volume. And once you know what that is, you just have to accept it. There's no point fighting it. There's no point looking at what other people can achieve in a day. That's just what you have and you've got to work with it the best you can. And I, with fatigue and anxiety, I actually can't do as much as some people can. I just have to do it better and fit it in more efficiently and really, really think about what I care about most and how I'm going to fit that in. And Christine asked if I'm medicated for anxiety and I am. I do take anti-anxiety medication. And with chronic fatigue, I do still have to do a lot of things that I in my life that I wish I not wish I didn't, but that aren't like I can't just I have to get more sleep than the average person, for example. I have to get 10 hours sleep pretty much. That's a lot of sleep. And I'm sure when we have children, obviously that will change and my body will let me do hopefully different things. Um, But, you know, there are just things that you learn about yourself that you need to work around to get the best out of yourself. And it is a process. It takes a lot of patience, but we all have something that makes, that means that we can't necessarily go at full throttle all the time. Just find what that is and work with it instead of trying to work against it. Rosie Van Vloten, what's one piece of advice that has stuck with you throughout your life? Oh, so many things. But I think one of the ones, especially lately, that stuck in my head is be kind to everyone for you never know what battle they're fighting behind closed doors. And I think really, especially when someone acts out or does something that's not very nice, we're so quick to judge and immediately put people in certain boxes, but I think you just don't know what they have to deal with at home and you don't know why they're acting like that. And it doesn't mean you have to put up with it, but I think we just all need a lot more compassion and kindness for the people around us. Morgan, how did you know Nick was the one and what was your history of relationships prior? Love, love, love your podcast. Thank you so much. That's such an interesting question. So Nick and I were both serial monogamists. We'd both had long-term relationships beforehand and we were both very much not looking for a relationship at the time. We had known of each other and hung out in nightclubs a few times but weren't really super close until, and we'd both been in long-term relationships until one day the stars aligned and we met on a night where we were both single. It was a very, very classy fling, but we were together pretty much straight after and still have been together since then. But I wouldn't say that straight away we were like, you're the one. I think we were very resistant at the beginning because we both didn't want long-term relationships. And I was going on an exchange for a year, like not long after that, and it just wasn't the right ingredient. So it was like the first two years were a bit rocky and a bit uncertain, but I think it was after we lived apart for 10 months and he came over to visit like every month, literally he was in Europe because we just, we tried and we just didn't want to be apart. And then everything since then has been, we're just such opposites in the areas that are really compatible, but similar in our thirst for adventure and very similar country family upbringings. His mum's adopted, I was adopted. There's a lot of parallels that just meant that when we did know each other was the one, which was actually quite early, like maybe year three or something of 10, (laughs) that's when we knew like we'd been through so much by then. We'd lived apart. We'd had so much like random challenge that if you were going to stay together, it was because you really wanted to. And by then, yeah, by then we knew. And since, I mean, we've, yeah, we've gone into business together, which is a whole nother thing. We have a golden retriever. We um, have built a, a wonderful, wonderful life together. We've traveled India, Africa, like all over the world. We've done such incredible things and, um, yeah, and are now happily, happily married, nearly our one year anniversary. And, um, 
babies sometime soon, hopefully. So we will see. But Michelle actually asked an interesting question on that note. Would you consider adopting a child considering how blessed you feel that you were adopted? And we absolutely would, particularly because Nick's mum was also adopted. I think we will probably try and have biological children first for no particular reason. I just think we'll try. Maybe because, you know, my mum didn't go through a pregnancy and maybe just out of interest. <laughs> but um, I think we're, we're both definitely open-minded to adoption. It's been an incredibly positive experience um, in both of our families. So we definitely think about that. Um, Michelle also asked, have you been back to the town where you were born? I have in Daegu City in Korea, not in a long time. I've been back to Korea, but not to Daegu. It's a, it's a country town. It's the city of apples and Nick is from the Apple Isle in Tasmania. So that's another weird parallel. Um, but yes, I have been back. I haven't met my biological parents. There's not a lot of records. It was Korea in the eighties. It was basically a third world country with no computers. So it's a very, very difficult process. But also, I mean, I was six months old. I don't think any of us have memories before then. And family's family. I, I think people say blood is thicker than water, but I think it's chosen family. Those ties, like the family who loves you and nurtures you and rears you is those ties are thicker than anything. So unless I felt a really big gap, I think some people who feel a gap in their adoptive family, they go looking, but I've never felt that. So if you put them in a room and said your biological parents are there, I'd probably go, but it does take many years and lots of effort to find them. So I haven't embarked on that just yet. Now, some other interesting fast fire questions from Michelle on personal, a little less heavy. What would your last meal be before you die? Okay, maybe not less heavy, but <laughs> it would be the black miso cod from Nobu with the miso spinach. It is amazing. So good. And I'm so sad we haven't been able to go. Nobu is like our tradition for celebrations and We've had a couple of milestones in the last year and haven't been able to celebrate, so it's been a bit of a shift and a pivot to finding new ways to celebrate. Do you drink matcha every day? I used to at the very beginning. I don't anymore. I go through phases. It's either every day or a couple of times a week. At the moment, it's probably once every three days that I drink a matcha. But it's, yeah, I go through phases, but I do drink it very, very often or consume it in some way or another. What is your absolute guilty pleasure to treat yourself? Ooh. Honestly, I'm not a big sweet tooth. I'm more of like a cheesy person. So I'd go like a big cheesy pizza over anything sweet. But if I had to say, I'm not like, I like chocolate, but it's not my favorite, favorite thing. But I love, I love banana bread. So like a thick banana bread with like lashings of butter. Although I don't know if that's really a guilty pleasure. I'd probably eat that anyway. But I definitely go something cheesy over something chocolatey. Um, MV Media Lab, favorite foods and favorite cheat meal. My favorite foods, nut butter, avocado, Greek yogurt, berries. I love eggs. Uh, I love Japanese food, anything Japanese. Favorite cheat meal, again, I think it would be pizza. Pizza or like cheesy pasta bake or burgers. Yeah, more savory than sweet for sure. So I've realized I've been rambling for a really long time. Um, what sections do we have next? We have a couple on 2020 and then I'll finish up with what's next. I can't believe I rambled so much, guys. I'm so sorry if none of this has even been interesting. I've been in like a vortex. I don't even know how much time has passed. This is so weird without a guest. Okay. So 2020, Daniela, as you reflect on the volatility of 2020, what have you learned about yourself? Maybe have you noticed your values changing? It's something I've been reflecting on a lot recently and wanted to toss out to you. And Daniela, I think that's a, an excellent question that a lot of us actually will have learned 
a lot about ourselves and it's something really nice to reflect on. As I keep saying, I wouldn't wish it to happen this way, but I have not hated the extra time at home. I think the biggest thing I've learned about myself is that I'm a bigger introvert than I thought. I've had a big revelation about energy types. I think that we all say either you're an extrovert or an introvert, but I think we're actually all two energy types. We're one energy type for the energy that we like to spend and then another energy type for the energy that we like to when we need to recharge our energy. So I'm definitely an extrovert in the way I like to spend my energy with people, but I've realized I'm actually an introvert in the way I need to recharge that energy. I need time at home between to just be quiet and just be by myself. And I don't think I knew the extent of that until I've now had from March till now pretty much at home and I'm still okay. I'm still okay just sitting with myself, doing my work quietly and just being a homebody. I knew I was a homebody, but I actually didn't give myself time to feel that because I was always traveling or running around. And I always say, you know, you've heard me a million times have revelations about going slower, but this year has really, really actually given me a practical example of how much more grounded I feel when I spend more time at home. And that's been a really, really big learning that I have to allow more of that uh, and not just be traveling incessantly. Even if I love that, I do genuinely love it, but then I wonder why I'm, I'm tired all the time. So I think that's been my biggest learning that I really love quiet family time. I've loved crosswords and Sudoku and like really gentle things. That meme that I put up the other day about how I'm a person who likes to do a lot of stuff in the person in the body of a person who doesn't. I think I'm exactly that. I'm exactly that, but I have to make more time for the side of me that that likes to not do a lot of stuff. <laughs> Fran, who is a, a dear friend of my mum, asked, how's your mum coping with lockdown? Mum has all her chickens in her nest, so she's actually having the time of her life. We <laughs> have not been home this much in a very long time, so we're actually having a really, really lovely, lovely period of family time. Lola Star creates asked, what motivates you to keep going day to day? And Aisha Cindy asked similarly, how do you get yourself out of a deep funk? And then Is Nguyen asked, how do you stay positive in ISO? And all of those, I think, are things we're all really struggling with. Just like I said before, motivation, positivity, all of those things come in waves. Emotions are, they're visitors. Let them come and let them go. And you can't expect to have motivation every time you demand it. Every time you want to be motivated, it's not necessarily going to be there. I also said something yesterday on my stories about how sometimes consciously you feel like you're fine, but your body responds with weird symptoms. And I think our body genuinely hears news. It absorbs the fact that things are different. It absorbs the news that is quite negative and crisis focused. And it's really, really overwhelming to be alive in 2020. It's a scary time. It's disorientating. We don't have the same routines. There's every reason why your moods and motivation are going to be out of whack. So I think really, really important is to be gentle Don't push yourself too much when you're having a day that just isn't, if it's just not working, being hard on yourself is really not going to make it any better. So be okay that productivity looks different at the moment and no one expects it to look the same. So we all have to give each other a little bit more leeway, but then also get to know yourself again. So I always say like self-awareness is the best tool you can ever have. And finding out, like I said, with managing chronic fatigue and anxiety, like just not fighting it when it's bad and then really enjoying it when it's good. You, you can't predict that same like that same pattern in motivation. So again, just learn the things that don't help, don't do them. And the things that do really help, do more of those. 
but experiment to figure out what they are because it takes a little bit your your own research project. So I found what motivates me is if I get up, make a really beautiful breakfast that's similar to what I would eat in a cafe and eat at the table away from my laptop, away from work, and then I get changed and don't wear my same pajama clothes to work. Like those two things really help. Having a different working area to your bedroom, that really helps me. Having a break in the middle of the day to walk Paul around the block and get some vitamin D, that really helps to break up the day. And calling it early if I'm just not having a good time, like just go and read a book. Just go and do something completely different because if you get motivated at 7 p.m., why not work then? Like life is weird at the moment. Just take what you can get, give yourself a break and do some research on what helps and what doesn't um, and just write that all down. Like observe yourself like you would a specimen as an experiment to figure it all out. And I think also it's more important than ever to curate your environment. You can't live a positive life with a negative mind or a negative environment. So be really careful about the content you consume. Follow pages that have really uplifting facts. Listen to podcasts that are really happy. And I'm not just plugging my own podcast, but listen to stories, you know, go on board panda and find all those really interesting stories of fun things that are happening to animals in the world like try and block out the things that actually are going to make it worse obviously stay alert because you need to know what's happening in the world but just be more vigilant than you ever have been before on what you consume because that will really affect your mindset and if it you know if you find that you might want to splash out a little bit on more expensive candles because that helps you feel like your home working environment is nicer. Do that. Or if you want to just splash out and not make a coffee at home and just go and get one because the short drive within five kilometers really helps break up your day, do that. You know, just try a lot of different things and see what sticks. Um, and don't expect that to be the same on each different day either. So just be really, really gentle on yourselves. And the last interesting question on that uh, on 2020 was if you were single, how would you have coped from Hetty HT? And I think that's a great question because, you know, a couple of people have said you're super well adjusted in ISO. And I'm like, well, actually it's because I live with a lot of people and we can all work and we've got enough room in this house to work in different areas to where we sleep and eat, which is incredibly privileged. If I was single, I would have had a much more difficult time. And I feel so much for the people who are living alone and without a pet who don't have that human contact to bounce off. So I would have definitely made much more structured, rigid appointments with my friends, which I've actually done anyway, and they uplift you like nothing else to Zoom and FaceTime your friends as much as possible because it's not the same. But seeing someone's face and them smile and watching your facial reactions and FaceTiming your friends who have babies or pets, like that stuff really, really makes you feel connected. Joining groups of people who are doing online classes or things where you're going to have human reaction and feel like you're part of a community, I just would have really ramped up all those things and just, again, made sure that I was kind to myself and did everything to make my environment as conducive to a positive mindset as I could. But it's definitely harder. And the very last one, oh my God, this has gone on for so long. I'm sorry. Uh, what's next? Dinosaurus asked, will you be starting a YouTube channel? Your vlogs can be like, come seize the A with me. Great idea. Been thinking about it for a really long time. I will for now say no, not in the near future. I think I have enough platforms at the moment that, you know, it's, it comes back to that. What can I fit in? And what will I do well? And I think at the moment that would be stretching it. I have so many ideas. My problem is I have way too many ideas for the energy that I have and the hours of the day that exist. But um, I think for now that would add a level of 
commitment and stress and workload that would actually take the joy out of all the other things that I can fit in now. And audio editing is already, you know, quite a lot of work and I'm producing other podcasts. So I think a YouTube channel would tip me over the edge right now, but I won't say no to it in the future. There might come a time where that would be great. I would love to have a channel. I already know what it's going to be called, but that's on the back burner for now. Michaela Hopkins, do you plan on increasing the podcast production for other companies? Do you plan on growing Matcha Maiden or are you happy where it's at? I love producing podcasts for other companies I, because I mentioned before that I've discovered that I love editing. I love the challenge of being given a brief and writing a script to that and then bringing out the best in the guest. It's what I love about doing my own and so I love doing that for others. I think it's definitely something I'll keep doing. I don't want to do too many at one time but a lot of them are isolated projects for sort of six episode kind of seasons. So if I could do a couple through the year, I would absolutely love to keep doing that. Um, Matcha Maiden, you might have heard that we took on some amazing investment partners, so have been able to hand over a lot of operations to much more experienced hands. We're still involved and are planning a lot of new products to come out, uh, but I finally have a little bit of operational space to breathe there. So I think my biggest focus will just be Seize the A, the podcast, the book. I have a lot of other projects on the go, particularly in the mental health area that are next on the list. I think Seize the A, you know, I, again, I always come back to those chapters. I think Matcha Maiden was a step to Seize the A, which is where I really have found where I feel like right now is exactly where I'm meant to be. There are a lot more iterations and chapters of that to come. So I think that's where my focus will be. Kat and Michelle also asked, what does the next year hold for you? That's such an interesting question because I would have said something totally different. We had, I think, nine overseas trips and lots and lots of different projects planned in how 2020 was supposed to be. Uh, if you listen to Menage's episode uh, for episode 99, you'll know that a big cause of a lot of our uh, pain and suffering and challenge has been the attachments that we had to certain things and to the way that certain things have gone. Being around people like him has really helped me become a lot quicker at letting go and surrendering to letting go of attachments I had to how things could have looked and focusing very much on how they do look. So I don't know what the next year holds, actually. <laughs> I would have said that we would have started a family sometime soon. Um, we still haven't had our honeymoon, though, and we had really hoped that it would be in Egypt, which is not very newborn friendly. Uh, but then again, I don't know if we wait until travel restrictions lift. And I mean, in Victoria, that's so far away. We can't even go five kilometres away, let alone to interstate, let alone overseas. So Really, I think the best thing any of us can do and my approach anyway is just day by day, take it day by day. We're living in a year where you can't actually think that far ahead. And to be honest, I think a lot of us have spent way too long thinking too far ahead and this is really a time where we're being given a gift of only needing to think a couple of days ahead. And that's true mindfulness. That's what the definition of mindful is, to think in the now. And experiencing that, it's it, actually kind of liberates you from having to have a five-year plan at any one time. So I'm just taking it day by day. In the next immediate future is the book launch and that's my focus for now. Who even knows what we'll be able to do at Christmas? So I don't even know, you know, towards the end of 2020 what that will look like and 2021 is an absolute mystery. But to finish on a quote, as you know I love to do, when everything is uncertain, anything is possible. So what does next year hold for you? Anything is possible. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, guys. I cannot believe I've just rambled for like an hour and 40 minutes. It's going to be a heavy edit. I don't even know what I'm going to cut out because I didn't even breathe in between it all. But I hope I answered your questions. I had to skip a few and I cut myself short in a lot of ones that I would have loved to go deeper in. But again, I wanted to save the ones of you who aren't interested in those answers from Ramble Town. If you have anything else, you guys know I love to get an email. I'll always send back as many deep thoughts as I can if you have anything more specific that you want to ask. I appreciate every single one of you just so much. I cannot wait for a couple of the episodes that are coming in the next couple of weeks. And yeah, just so much love for you all. Thank you so much for everything that you do to be part of this beautiful community and the neighborhood. And it's a tough one. It's a tough year. It's a really tough time, but I hope you're finding ways to seize your yay. 